today we'll uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 27. And this chapter speaks about a few things. Uh, we see that in the first uh, part, which is verses one through four and verse eight, uh, it speaks about some stones uh, that are set up and something is engraved on the stones. So we'll consider that. And verse five to seven, uh, it speaks about a worship that takes place uh, at the altar of stones. And there are certain offerings that are made uh, at that altar. And verse nine and 10 speaks about God's covenant uh, with the Israelites. And the chapter ends uh, with two mounts, uh, which have uh, two different uh, pronouncements uh, on the people of Israel or those who are listening. So we'll start with verses uh, one through four and verse eight, uh, which speaks about stones and what is uh, engraved uh, in them and what is the purpose of doing that. So in this chapter, we, we are introduced to two stones. So in verses one through four, we see uh, uh, great stones as we read in verse two. And in the subsequent verses, we see the altar of stones. So there are two references to stones uh, in this chapter. So the first one uh, is what we call the great stones. And the timing for this is when the people of Israel, when they cross uh, the Jordan River uh, into the promised land, they were asked to uh, set up these uh, great stones uh, in Mount Ebal. And the purpose uh, for these stones uh, was to write the laws uh, on the stones uh, and to preserve it uh, for future generations. So obviously in those days, they didn't have uh, anything digital or anything like that. So here the laws were written uh, in the stones so that uh, it could be preserved uh, for the next uh, generations. And we are also told in verse eight uh, that the laws must be written uh, very plainly. So there should be no confusion. Uh, it should be clear uh, to the reader. And we also read in verse two and verse four that it should be coated with plaster so that what is written can be seen more easily. And obviously the purpose of the laws uh, is that uh, it should not be forgotten. So that is why it is being preserved. And of course, the Lord also expects uh, that people <coughs> who are looking at the laws, uh, they should also obey the laws. So in the book of Deuteronomy, we are introduced to many laws, but obviously uh, not all of the laws uh, would have been written uh, in the great stones. Uh, maybe uh, just the Ten Commandments uh, were captured in those stones. And we read about the Ten Commandments, uh, as we have seen before. Uh, these were the laws uh, that were written uh, in stone by God. And we know that it happened twice because the first time it was written, uh, then the tables were broken, uh, but the law, Lord wrote it again uh, the second time. So in Exodus uh, 24, verse 12, we see, the Lord said unto Moses, uh, come up to me uh, into the mount and be there, and I will give thee uh, tables of stone and a law and commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest uh, teach them. So we know that these laws are coming from God, and these are laws uh, that were to be preserved uh, and shared uh, with the people of Israel. And it was not for a specific time, but it was something uh, that has to be passed on from one generation to the next. And that is what we are reading in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses uh, is passing on all the teachings and all the experiences uh, to the people of Israel, so that what he has heard from God uh, can be preserved uh, for the 
subsequent uh, generation. And we saw this in Deuteronomy 5, which is all the Ten Commandments. So maybe when it talked about uh, inscribing the laws uh, in the stones, maybe it was just the Ten Commandments uh, that were inscribed in the stones. And as we saw from chapter 12 through chapter 26, uh, many of the other laws, uh, all of them were based on the Ten Commandments or they were uh, applications of the Ten Commandments uh, to different scenarios. So if you know the Ten Commandments, then obviously uh, you would be able to put it in context uh, in different settings uh, to see what should be the decision, uh, what should be the choice uh, that must be taken uh, in different settings. And of course, in the New Testament, uh, all of that has been condensed uh, into two commandments, uh, to love God and to love our neighbors. And everything else uh, flows from that. And all the decisions, all the actions that we take uh, could be based on just those two commandments uh, to see whether we are making the right decisions or the wrong decisions. And we also understand from the New Testament that just by keeping the laws, uh, we are not saved. And the law is simply like a mirror, as Paul says, or the law helps us uh, to bring us to Christ uh, as we read in Galatians uh, chapter 3, 24 and 25, it says, uh, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster that brought us unto Christ, that we might be uh, justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So we see that we are justified by faith and not by keeping the laws. And once uh, Christ came, uh, he gave us a liberty uh, from the laws. So we know that uh, no one could have kept uh, all the laws. There are more than uh, 600 laws. And Jesus uh, was the only person uh, who was able to fulfill the law, uh, as we read in Matthew 5.17. And as we have seen uh, in the Old Testament, uh, many sacrifices were made, uh, but they were not a permanent uh, solution uh, for disobedience. Uh, they were not a permanent uh, solution for sins or for breaking God's law. So Christ was the ultimate and the permanent solution, uh, even as Paul reminds us uh, in Romans 10.4, uh, for Christ uh, is the end of the law for righteousness uh, to everyone that believes. So we see that faith uh, is important uh, to our Christian life, and we are justified by faith and not uh, by our works or not by keeping the 600 laws, which we cannot keep uh, even if we try. So the true liberty or the true freedom for anyone is found uh, through Christ uh, by faith and through the work that was done at the cross. And we also read in the scriptures uh, that the law is now written uh, in our heart and we can make a distinction between the law that is written uh, in a natural heart uh, versus a law that is written uh, in the redeemed heart. So we see that distinction uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, uh, when it speaks about law being written in our hearts. So in Hebrews uh, 10, 16, uh, we can see that uh, as laws being written in a redeemed heart, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, uh, saith the Lord, I will put my laws uh, into their hearts and in their minds uh, will I write them. And we also see that as a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, it speaks about the same things, about the law being written uh, into our hearts. But we also read uh, in Romans, uh, that is where Paul begins in Romans uh, chapter 1, 
where he speaks about the natural heart and the inclinations of the natural heart, uh, despite having knowledge of what is good and yeah. what is evil. So we can say that to some extent, the laws are written in everybody's heart uh, after, we are born, after we are born into this world. So that is why we see that uh, even if a person is not a Christian, uh, they still have some moral compass based on which uh, they're able to make decisions about what is good and what is evil. And it is not just the Christians uh, who know what is right and what is wrong. But uh, there is a difference uh, in the behavior that we see uh, when the laws are written in a redeemed heart versus the laws that are written in the natural heart or in our conscience. So, so we see that a natural man is conscious of God's moral laws of evil and good. So even without reading the Bible, uh, most people understand that to kill someone is not good, uh, to steal is not good, uh, even though that is written in the Ten Commandments. But even if they have never read the Ten Commandments, they know that uh, based on the laws that are written in their hearts, what is good and what is bad. But the distinction that we see is that a natural man, uh, oftentimes they would choose uh, to pursue evil uh, rather than good. And oftentimes uh, they would modify the truth or they would twist the truth uh, so that they can justify their uh, sinful behavior. So even if they want to kill someone or if they want to steal or if they want to commit uh, other sins, they may know the truth and they may know what is right, but they may still choose to do the wrong things because their heart is still not regenerated or their spirit is not regenerated. So here we see that uh, a man is conscious of good and evil. And even though they knew God, uh, the Bible says they glorified, they glorified him, him neither were thankful, and they changed the truth of God uh, into a lie. And that is what we see in the world today. Uh, people are changing the truth of God. They are changing the, twisting the truth uh, to satisfy their sinful desires. But we often emphasize the redeemed heart, which is the heart that we receive uh, after we are born again, where our dead spirit is uh, regenerated, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, uh, the Bible says the Lord redeemed us. So after we are born again, uh, we are blessed with a new heart and a regenerated uh, spirit. And the knowledge of good and evil that we knew before, uh, we are more uh, sensitive uh, to that good and evil uh, through that spirit uh, that is living within us. And we are also given the power to overcome the evil desires. So that is the big change uh, that takes place uh, when we are born again. Uh, we are still conscious of the good and evil, but we see that our desires have changed uh, or they change from doing evil to doing good. And also we see that we are given the power to overcome evil desires. So that is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. So a person uh, with a natural heart, uh, they really cannot delight in doing God's will because the natural uh, inclination of man is to pursue evil, uh, to pursue sin. So unless our heart is redeemed, and we are blessed with a regenerated spirit. Uh, we cannot enjoy doing God's will. We cannot enjoy obeying what the Lord asks us to do.
And we also <laughs> read in the scriptures about a carnal heart. So a carnal heart would be uh, a believer uh, who has been born again, but when they go back uh, to their old ways or when they do not uh, mature uh, in spiritual things. So we see uh, three types of heart that we can make a distinction, uh, the natural heart, then the redeemed heart, and the carnal heart, which is uh, either an immature believer or a believer who is going back uh, to the old ways. So Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 2, 3, uh, that he's not able to feed uh, the people of God with uh, mature things because he says they are yet carnal and there is envying and strife and divisions. And he goes on to say, are you not carnal and walk as men? So obviously the question to ask ourselves is uh, what type of heart uh, do we have? Uh, do we have a natural heart, which is always uh, inclined uh, to fall into a life of sin? Or do we have a redeemed heart because of which we are able to overcome sin? We are able to overcome uh, temptations and make the right choices? Or do we have a carnal heart where we are saved, uh, but we are stagnant uh, in our spiritual life? Or we are actually going back uh, to our old ways? So that's just a small detour because it speaks about uh, writing the laws on stones, but the laws are actually written in our heart. And in verses uh, five through seven, uh, we read about a worship that takes place uh, at the second reference to stones. And here it is called as the altar of stones. So we can see what type of offerings are offered on this altar and what is their significance. Yeah, so here we read about the worship that takes place uh, at the altar of stones. And, and we see that it's an altar of uh, whole stones or uncorrupted stones. The stones are taken in their natural form. Uh, there is no human carving or human uh, effort to change the stones uh, into something else. So that's different from what we read about uh, when the, the temple was built by Solomon uh, they used stones, but all of the stones were prepared uh, in a certain way. But here we see that it is kept uh, in its simple form, in its unadulterated form. And we are just asked to bring those stones and create an altar out of it. And altar is significant uh, throughout the Old Testament, where oftentimes the altar is associated with a time of thanksgiving, uh, with a time of worship, uh, with a time of reflection on what God has done in people's lives, and also uh, an altar of commitment, uh, as we see in the case of Jacob. And we are uh, learn about two types of offerings here, burnt offering and peace offering. So as we saw last week, uh, worship uh, requires uh, sacrifice. And we also see that there is a rejoicing that takes place at the altar. And again, as we saw in chapter 12 and other places, uh, worship is not simply a very solemn time, but at the same time, uh, it is also a time of happiness. Uh, it is a time of celebration where the community comes together uh, to worship the Lord and to thank him and to praise him. So we see two types of offering here, which we are introduced uh, in Leviticus chapter 1. And Leviticus chapter 1 uh, speaks about burnt offering, if you read the entire chapter. So a key thing about burnt offering is that it is a complete uh, sacrifice uh, of the offering. So nothing is held back. 
uh, everything is burnt uh, at the altar. Uh, as we read in Leviticus 1.9, it says, uh, and the priest shall burn all on the altar, which means it is completely burnt, and that makes it a burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor uh, unto the Lord. And in Leviticus uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 9 through 13, uh, again, it reminds us of the same thing. Command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. Uh, it is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar uh, all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. Uh, it shall never go out. So that's a, a beautiful phrase, uh, that the fire shall always be burning uh, upon the altar. It shall never go out. So that should be the kind of uh, relationship that we have with the Lord. The fire for the Lord is always burning in our life and leading us and guiding us. So burnt offerings were made uh, in order to atone for sins and to renew the relationship with God that was oftentimes broken by sin or broken by disobedience. But we see in the people of, of Israel that burnt offerings were done quite often because oftentimes uh, they would disobey the Lord and they would break the commandments and lose the communion with God. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he became the ultimate uh, burnt offering where he sacrificed uh, himself uh, completely uh, for the sins of mankind and he became the substitute for our sins. And the second offering that we read about here uh, is what we call the peace offering, or it is also known as the uh, fellowship offering. And in Leviticus uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 11 through 21, uh, it gives a little bit more details uh, on this. We'll just read a couple of verses. It says, and this is the law of sacrifice of peace offering, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour, fried. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, and it goes on. So we see that peace offering, uh, it is a voluntary offering, uh, which could be done to show thanks, to show thanks or to fulfill a vow, or it could simply be a free will offering. And we also see that in case of peace or fellowship offering, uh, only a small portion is offered at the altar to be burnt, and everything else uh, is consumed uh, by the worshipers, and it is also shared with others, uh, which again reminds us that worship uh, is also associated with compassion. Uh, it is associated with sharing with others, and it is a time of fellowship, and it is a time of uh, rejoicing. So that is the worship at the altar, which uh, includes uh, two offerings, uh, the burnt offering, which is the complete offering to the Lord. And the second one is the fellowship offering, which is partially offered at the altar, and everything else is uh, shared with everyone. And verse 9 and 10 uh, is a repetition of God's covenant uh, with the Israelites. And again, we see this uh, repeated several times, uh, just to remind us of 
of the importance of not forgetting uh, what is the covenant that the Lord had with the people of Israel. Okay, so we see the same thing uh, repeated again. So maybe uh, based on experience, we know that we also forget uh, the basic laws that the Lord is trying to teach us. Uh, not that we forget, but we fail to apply. So the Lord is constantly uh, bringing it to our memory. Uh, what is the law that he has given us and what does he expect from us? So here we are told to pay attention uh, because uh, we are the people of the Lord or telling it to the Israelites, you are the people of the Lord thy God. And the expectation is that they would obey the voice of the Lord and do his commandments. And that is how they would uh, inherit uh, all the blessings uh, that we will read about in chapter 28. And the next part is a bigger part, uh, the two mounts that we read about uh, in verses 11 through uh, 26. And we'll see how the two mounts are different and what are some of the curses uh, that are given uh, to the people. Okay, so here we see uh, two mounts, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, uh, which are opposite to uh, each other. And many of these may seem uh, very strange, but if you picture that there are two mounts and what is happening in the two mounts, uh, I think uh, it will be very easy to convey the message that God is uh, trying to convey. So there are two mounts and there are two groups of tribes. Uh, one is uh, situated on Mount Gerizim uh, to bless those who obeyed. And we are also, uh, that is a fertile land. And the other group of tribes, they're on Mount Ebal to curse uh, those who disobeyed. And that mount uh, is a barren land. So we see that a distinction is made uh, between those who keep the laws and those who disobey the laws. And what are the consequences of continuing in a path of disobedience? Uh, so a picture is given to us of a barren land. So that is how our life would be uh, if we continue on the path of disobedience. But if you continue on the path of obedience, which is what the Lord wants us, uh, he would continue to bless us. And our life would be like a well-watered garden and well taken care of. And when we go to Joshua, we see that this is uh, actually fulfilled in Joshua chapter 80, uh, verse 30 to 35. So the two mounts uh, speak of two choices, uh, good and evil and blessing and curses. And again, uh, the same sentiment is captured in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, uh, which speaks about life and death. It says, I call heaven and earth uh, to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your seed may live. So we see that the clear choices are given uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, they can either choose life or death. They can either choose blessing or cursing. And even today, uh, we are given the same choices uh, as Jesus reminds us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, uh, 13 and 14, he says, uh, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that findeth. So here again, the choice is given to us uh, between life and death, between a narrow way and a broad way. Uh, just like we read in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And in verses uh, 13 through 26, uh, we have a fairly long list uh, of 12 uh, curses. And we also see that each one of these curses uh, is followed by amen, uh, which uh, indicates that people who are hearing it, uh, they are affirming that if somebody is committing a crime, uh, that should be the curse on their life, that should be the consequence. And by saying amen, uh, they're also uh, confirming that if they are the ones who are guilty of doing certain things, uh, they are agreeing to what would be the consequence of their actions. We generally don't read uh, such lists uh, in the church or we don't hear many messages where we see a list of curses uh, followed by amen because generally we want to be blessed, but this chapter makes it clear uh, that we always are faced uh, with two choices. When we obey the Lord, uh, there is blessing in our life. And when we disobey the Lord, uh, the curses or God's uh, chastisement is on our life. So we see a long list of curses uh, followed by Amen. Uh, it touches upon different commandments. If you go through each one of them, which uh, we're not going to do, but uh, so the first one speaks about idolatry, uh, which uh, speaks to commandment one. Then it speaks about dishonoring parents, uh, which speaks to commandment number five. In the same way, we can go through the list. Uh, all of them would fit uh, into one of the 10 commandments. So then it speaks about stealing by shifting boundaries, which we uh, saw earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. Then it speaks about cruelty to the blind which could also be interpreted as being cruel to those who are weak, uh, those who are disabled, or in some way, uh, they are not able to take care of themselves. So if you are cruel to such people, uh, then we bring about curse. Then it speaks about uh, injustice to stranger, fatherless, and widow that we talked about earlier. Then it talks about different ways in which we can violate uh, the sexual standards uh, that the Lord has kept or the boundaries that the Lord has kept. Uh, if we violate those boundaries, then it would lead to losses in our life. Then it speaks about violence uh, towards neighbor, which, which could again be taken as uh, part of the second commandment uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Then, then it speaks about bribery, uh, giving bribes to have someone killed. So even though uh, we are not directly killing someone, uh, but our intention is not correct. So that is why when we come to the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see that many of the sins are associated with the uh, intention uh, more than the action. So that is why it says, uh, when you look at a woman with uh, lustful eyes, you've already committed adultery. So even though the action is not there, uh, if the intent is wrong, if the thought process is wrong, then we stand guilty. And it ends by saying that failure to conform to all the words of the law or failure to obey the words or to uh, affirm the law that is given to us, uh, it will bring curse in our life. And obviously, nobody can fulfill all the laws, as we have seen uh, throughout the Old Testament. And the only way we can get liberty uh, is through uh, Lord Jesus Christ. So we read that uh, Christ has redeemed us uh, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles uh, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And verse 10, I'm missing the reference, but verse 10 says, for as many as, as are of the works of the law or under the curse, for it is written, uh, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of law to do them. So this is from New Testament, but as we read in Deuteronomy 27, uh, if you are not obeying the laws, then it will result in curses rather than blessings. So that is what uh, chapter 27 is about. So we considered uh, verses 1 through 4 and verse 8, uh, which speaks about uh, setting up a stones uh, after you cross the Jordan River uh, into the promised land to engrave the laws or the Ten Commandments on the stones so that that teaching or that revelation from God is preserved for the next uh, generation. So just like the Bible has been preserved from one generation to the next, uh, in the same way the teaching or the revelation from God through the laws uh, had to be preserved uh, for the next generation. And we looked at three types of heart, the natural heart, which is not born again, uh, which, is, which is conscious of what is right or wrong, but is inclined to do evil. Then we have the redeemed heart or the regenerated heart, uh, which is again aware of good and evil, but it's also able to overcome evil and the, because the desires are changed by the spirit living within us. And we saw the carnal heart, which is a backslidden uh, believer or a believer who's not maturing in their spiritual life. And in verse 5 through 7, we saw one more altar that was set up uh, with stones uh, that were not uh, that were not uh, carved or changed in any way. It was the stones were taken the way it is. And on those stones, the base altar was built. And we saw that peace offering and burnt offering was made. Burnt offering is uh, offering that is 100% uh, offered. Uh, at the altar and peace offering or fellowship offering. Uh, only a part is offered at the altar and everything else is consumed and shared with others. And nine and 10 repeat God's covenant, which is uh, they must obey and do the laws that are given to them. And only then they will experience the blessings that come uh, from God. And from 11 to 26, we saw the two mounts uh, which speak about two uh, pronouncements uh, that are made on the people. Uh, if they obey, there would be blessings, but if they disobey, uh, there would be curses. Uh, 